My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative as it relates to their perspective. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts, regardless of age, status, or industry. We intend to transparently investigate the evolving global dialogue regarding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. By hosting these stories and conversations, we aim to contribute to the changing platform and representation of these individuals for the future. If you're enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out our subsequent series called Roundtable with Patricia Kathleen, where we talk with a panel of guests regarding key topics that arise in these individual interviews. You can subscribe to all of our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, as well as our website, patriciacathleen.com. You can also contact me directly via this website or through my media website, wild.agency. That's W-I-L-D-E dot agency. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is your host, Patricia, and today I am sitting down with Patricia Sinai. Patricia is the founder of Community Investment Strategies. Welcome, Patricia. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You might be one of the first Patricias I've interviewed, so it's super exciting to say that name over and over again. Um, Before I read Patricia's bio and start peppering her with questions, for everyone listening, a brief roadmap of today's podcast. We are first going to look at Patricia's academic background and early professional life. We'll then turn towards unpacking community investment strategies. We'll get into the logistics of who, what, when, where, why, and how. And then we'll turn towards some of the philosophical background of community investment strategies, um, the impetus for its launch, some of the targeted um, customers it caters to and things of that nature. And then we'll turn our efforts towards analyzing Patricia's goals that she might have for CIS um, over the next three years involving scaling, expansion, and anything else that she can tell us. We'll wrap everything up with advice that she has for those of you looking to get involved in what she's doing or um, perhaps emulate a little bit of what she does. This roadmap follows the same trajectory as all of the roadmap in these series. Um, A quick bio on Patricia, with nearly 30 years of community problem-solving experience, Patricia Sinai launched Community Investment Strategies, a consulting firm that connects entities and individuals' passions to impactful action in the community. She has worked with nonprofits and community leaders from the United States and abroad, has taught public service at UCSD, and served as a school board member for the Encinitas Union School District. Patricia is a Latina immigrant with degrees from UCLA and the American University. Most importantly, she is raising two amazing bilingual multicultural children with her husband. So Patricia, I'm so excited to get um, kind of into the nuts and bolts of that. For everyone really quickly looking to contact Patricia, you can find her on LinkedIn, Patricia Sinai, that's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A, S-I-N-A-Y, and I think if you also attach community investment strategies, you'll find the proper Patricia, assuming there aren't 10 million out there. Um, But before we get into all of that, Patricia, I'm hoping you can walk us through your academic background and early professional life to kind of offer a bird's eye view into your past. 
Sure. So as you had mentioned, I was, I'm the oldest of an immigrant family and um, I came to the United States from Mexico when I was uh, four years old. So I was kind of the trailblazer in a lot of things American. My mom did go to college for two years in the United States, but when it came time for me to go to college, I had to figure out the SATs, the ACTs, all, all those things. Um, and I got, I did apply, I lived in Southern California, I applied to UCLA, my dream school, and got in. Um, but before I left high school, several people from my high school had said to me, you know, you only got in because you're a Mexican. And so I kind of went into school with a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. And you'll hear a lot, you know, a lot of women go through that. And then a lot of um, minorities go through that that feeling as well. And and it's a, it's it's you go through it already without people saying it to you. I had it said to me directly. So I, I, I walked around UCLA waiting for someone to tap me on, on my shoulder and say, you know, we made a mistake. You got to get out. And so I was looking through the card, the card, the car, the class catalog, trying to figure out what major I wanted. And back then we didn't have the internet. And I went through it and found a degree in international relations that wanted bilingual speakers and that's where I kind of focused my attention. I graduated from UCLA, didn't know what I was going to do with when I grew up. So I went to Washington DC, did international development in DC for about seven years, but kept feeling I could do more. And I also felt, felt a little that it was arrogant to be a white Latina in the United States promoting democracy in Latin America when there were really smart people there who could do it themselves. So I shifted my focus to promoting democracy in the United States um, and moved back to California. I've been working in nonprofits, got a fellowship with the San Francisco Foundation. So that's how I got into philanthropy. And then I was, uh, I came down to San Diego. I was recruited to San Diego to do several projects for the San Diego Foundation tw 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. And it was working with immigrants, um, uh, refugees, neighborhoods, LGBTQ communities, they were all new communities to the foundation at that time. And it was just really exciting work. And I slowly started figuring out that what I did best was not write, not write someone else a check from someone else's money because it wasn't my own money that was giving grants, but was bringing people together, facilitating, asking the tough questions, um, looking at their financials and stuff and finding the problems, the challenges that organizations were having them and giving them good advice. So I decided to launch my own company where I could provide consulting information, both to individual donors, because the donors really found it valuable to expand their grant granting through advice I gave them or tours I gave them, as well as nonprofits. Yeah. And and um, it's sounding like and then CIS or Community Investment Strategies was born. Yeah, a lot of consultants use their own name, but I kept thinking, what is it that I do? Um, and I went up to a friend. And I said, I have a new title for myself. I'm a community investor. And like, well, why are you going to call yourself a community investor? You should call your company Community Investment Strategies. And it stuck. And the tagline um, that stuck from the very beginning was connecting passion to action. So it's really finding whoever my client's passion is, really getting to understand them, doing the research and connecting them to a way they can make a difference in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of profiling is 
paramount with, you know, both um, not just the success of the effort of the individual, but the feeling of um, satisfaction with the individual yeah. who's who's making the endeavor. So let's climb through it a little bit. Um, let's talk about the logistics. When, what year was it officially launched? Um, did you found it alone or did you have co-founders and did you take any funding or was it bootstrapped? So I did it in 2003. I made the decision in September, October, I launched it. And that was the same year that here in San Diego, we had really big fires. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time in my philanthropic um, career that the whole community was coming together to solve something. And I was on the outside because I was no longer at the foundation. So I was very frustrated, but the foundation called me in and I did end up consulting with them. So my, my former client was my first client. Um, and I didn't really need a lot of funding because what my, my company is, is me, my brain, my knowledge, my experience. So I needed a desk, a bookshelf, laptop, those type of things. But more than anything, um, it was, you know, bootstraps and got going. Yeah, absolutely. And it was you alone. So no one else co-founded it with you. Um, the impetus for the launch, it sounds like you, it, it came together organically. Was there an aha moment or was it more of you realizing that you had these skills where you could kind of match make cause and person? You know, it's almost always an evolution. Um, part of it was I knew I had these skills. Um, I was a tough person to manage because I kind of wanted to do things my own way. And I always joke around that I created the systems at the foundation that drove me out because I didn't like rules. Um, I got bored quickly, so I always wanted to do new things. And I was dating this great man who kept saying, oh, you know, I really believe in kind of a woman being home, and, yes, a mom at home for the kids. I was like, baloney, that's not me. But as I was thinking about all these things, I was like, well, there is some flexibility. I do want to kind of create my own schedule and my own clients. And there aren't that many, especially when I started 15 years ago, there weren't that many people who were bilingual, multicultural, who got understood the nonprofit side as well as the philanthropic side. And so I jumped in. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so what has the growth been? I mean, 2003, it's, it's been around for a healthy chunk of time. You're looking at 17 years now. Um, what has the growth been like in the beginning? Was it hockey stick? Was it slow, but steady? How did that all work? It's, it's interesting. Um, it goes up and down and sometimes, you know, as a consultant, we always say, you know, be, be thankful for the ups and be thankful for the downs and and um i it's it's been always steady uh after the in the first year i got two anchor clients per se to say um one was teaching at uc san diego so two, two quarters i would be teaching a class on public service at uc san diego and then i on america line in seattle hired me to the local giving person here in San Diego and they're still a client. And so it was nice to have that base of two clients. So I, I knew that was coming and that gave me opportunities to connect with um, different people. It's been all word of mouth. Um, I had a strong reputation at the San Diego Foundation and, and then since then it's been just my reputation from the other work that I've done. And Sometimes it's crazy busy and um, 
I, I will bring in maybe it's someone to help me with some of the tasks. I've only done that maybe about five different times. I have partnered with other, other consultants to do bigger projects and um, I've never panicked. I've never thought, have yes. I made a mistake? Yeah. I'm wondering when you teach at UCSD, um, when you have students, is there a certain amount of intel or um, like on the job training and knowledge that you bring to your students in regards to, you know, your clients and what you have? Because there's changing trends, right? You've been around for more than a decade. That's enough time to collect a lot of really useful data. Yeah. Well, the reason I was hired to teach was not because I had a PhD or I had written a lot or the you know, things that usually get you into academia. My, uh, um, the provost at the time at Thurgood Marshall College, uh, he knew of my work in the community. And when I said to him, I'd like to teach at a community college, can you help me? He's like, oh, why not come here? And I'm like, I haven't, I don't have a PhD and I have no desire to get one. He said, no, we need your brains and your experience. So that was the reason I, I was hired. And my curriculum, the syllabus changed over the 15 years I taught because there's been a huge change in civil society, in, in how nonprofits work, even the idea of corporate philanthropy. At the past, the idea was corporations would hide what they did because they didn't want the stock holders to know using giving money to the community and now it's the opposite they're very out in front because that's what stockholders are looking for to do digital investments and so there was a lot of um, constantly sharing my information connecting them with the community I also felt that I didn't have very many professors who said this is an opportunity this is how things are done in the real world if you think about academia we write 20 page papers but in the real world you never write a memo more than two pages all bulleted. And so it was having those honest conversations. My class was small so we could teach the basics from how do you use a business card, which side you put a, your name tag on and why. Yeah, absolutely. I think that sounds so useful. So with the utility that your students have, um, everything that you're doing, do you ever find like a symbiotic relationship where you bring them back into, I, I feel like there's, this is like a, prime ground for internships or something like that but maybe that's just me like trying to make more of a system out of this um well i've thought about bringing them into some of the work that i'm doing and, and usually i take projects that i can manage on my own but what i have done is as i know their interests i've always bring in speakers from the community based on what their interest is professionally and many of those organizations or speakers have ended up having my students as interns or employees yeah uh, and now it's become symbiotic in the professional world because i'll get a call from um a, a former student and they need xyz connection or uh, or consulting um i've also i would say I, it was symbiotic throughout the teaching as well because everybody has different experiences and i loved what i learned from the students I constantly applied that to the work I was doing and going back to people and saying, you know, I have students who made it even though they sh maybe shouldn't have, or we have stereotypes. And these are the things that they yeah. said. Them. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Likewise, has, has teaching kind of augmented what you've done with your clients? Has there been any reverse symbiosis there um, or has it changed who you work with? And also let's turn our attention towards the, um, 
clients that you work with? Like it's, it feels like you have a matchmaking thing happening here. And so I'm wondering how you're finding the philanthropic endeavors and um, the people. And so those are two different marketing efforts, right? Well, it's, it's interesting because sometimes in some communities, philanthropic, those who are consultants to philanthropy will say, I will not work with nonprofits. And some who work with nonprofits say it's a conflict of interest. I think we've evolved as a sector more where we do do cross-sector collaboration. And so I will work with a foundation like the Orange County Community Foundation at the same time that I'm working with 0800. And it's, you know, that that's been really helpful to go both ways. Yeah. And in your, can you repeat your first question? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm wondering if the students impacted in any way, the way they kind of dealt with clients and things of that nature, if there was that kind of give and take. Learn from the students how to present better because you could, you get, you have an audience right there who will give you feedback right away. The other thing that I found fascinating was how much credibility you get in the greater community when you say you teach at UCSD. And so that was kind of interesting. People would joke and say, you know, my teeth, when I'm facilitating someone would say, no, no, no. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a teacher. So I'm always looking for the person who isn't speaking. And they're like, oh, where do you teach? You know, people are always fascinated by that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. It holds a lot of cachet. I I, I hope anyway, as a dodgy academic myself, (laughs) I think that it should, you know, I love the ivory tower for even within all of its flaws. Um, So looking at, because you've had this storied past in history, Mm -hmm. I'm curious to find out, do you, and have you in the past had like three to five year business goals with, um, with community investment strategies? Do you, do you go that far out? And if so, what are the current through your goals right now? I would say when I first started that I had created the the official business plan and I was going to, my goal was to have three individual philanthropists that I would work with and four nonprofits. And I had it very clear. What I've learned along the way is um, to leave myself a little more open to opportunities. And that's how I ended up teaching and doing corporate philanthropy at the same time I might be facilitating a um, a strategic planning session. And I was able to jump in at the last, you know, to, uh, to apply for an appointment on the local school board. And now I'm looking at, I applied for the uh, commissioner for the state citizen redistricting commission. So it allows me to be more flexible about the different opportunities I can pursue. Yeah. And Last year, I was sitting down to do a business plan because I was saying, where do I want, you know, who do I want to be when I grow up again, even at, that's constantly what I'm doing. And I realized that setting goals felt very restrictive. Uh, And, and I, so I started talking to people about setting goals and, and why it's harder to do as you get older. And part of it was you have experience and you've also want to be open. There's so many things I could never imagine doing if I set goals and just stay very focused on those goals. So the main thing I try to do is get out and meet new people, have new experiences. And um, I will tell everybody I don't have the answers, but I know how to get the answers. That's key. Those are the keys to the kingdom. 
You know, yeah. having the keys is not the key. It's how <laughs> to obtain them because it changes. It changes from day to day and year to year how to um, achieve answers, you know, with the advent of, of everything from new technology to new world systems. So right. I think that that's really interesting. So I'm curious, um, we're coming into the, the piece that I, I love the most of the podcast. Um, if you were walking in a park or a garden tomorrow in beautiful Encinitas and um, some one of those coastline walks that I love so much up there, and um, you ran into a young woman or a female identified non-binary individual and they said, listen, I've, you know, I've had kind of this storied career and I've done a whole bunch of different things, but I've, I've got all of these skill sets that I think that could be really useful in this, um, you know, matchmaking endeavor between the um, humanitarian enterprise and private individuals. Um, what are the top three pieces of advice you would give that individual knowing what you know now after 17 years with community investment strategies? Know, know what your skills are and stick to them. Um, every, every nonprofit will ask you to help them fundraise. Uh, and so people will always jump into that. But the truth is usually it's not fundraising um, consulting that the organization needs. It might be board development. It might be something else. Mm -hmm. um, don't say, don't, don't do the fundraising if that's not what you want to do, because then you won't feel very good and neither will the relationship, but do go into a meeting to explore if it's really fundraising or not. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is, is meet as many people as you can and listen to their stories and listen to what they have to say and build on their um, strengths. Really look for the strengths of an organization and, and not just what are the problems and how am I gonna solve it, but start on what is really working and how do you build on it. Yeah. And Absolutely. finally, I would say it's, there's a difference between being a consultant and a contractor. And, mm -hmm. and being a consultant means you're being paid. It's usually short term. They want your expertise and your knowledge. They, you, and you can kind of lead the process. Being a contractor is really being an employee. <laughs> you know, it might be short term or long term, but yeah. there's work that they want done that they can't get done. And so they're, they're leading the process versus you leading the process. And many times, you need to figure that out early on and you may even want to adopt the title of contractor consultant so that the relation is is more clear but once if you figure that out for each of your interactions it's going to be a run a lot more smoothly yeah absolutely and that's so crucial it's really um interesting that you would cite that i hadn't really in my own head those two are frequently interchanged you know and they're not they're you're right they're very different especially the reality of the work outcome and things of that nature and the role that they serve all right so i have um know what your skills are and stick to them number two meet as many people as you can and listen to their stories and number three there's a difference between being a consultant and a contractor and decipher the difference early to enable um, the workflow that you want to do. I think yep. that those are wonderful. I think those are so powerful. I really, I would, I would advise everyone, not even in your line of work, you know, to, um, to really analyze. I'm a big definer. I believe in people defining their terms, people who work with me. I like to define my own terms and I certainly demand it of everyone I employ. 
because it enables communication, right? This transparency, this ability to, to function fluidly, knowing what one another means. And so I think that people who caused me to reevaluate the definition of words, yay, it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, well, I thank you so much, Patricia. We are out of time today, but um, I really appreciate everything that you've said. And I'm hoping that um, we can get you back on one of our other podcasts, maybe perhaps the round table or something like that and get more of your, um, your awesome 17 year expertise. I, I love it. And for everyone looking to contact her again, you can find her. It's Patricia Sinai, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-S-I-N-A-Y on LinkedIn. Um, her company is called Community Investment Strategies. And thank you so much for giving us your time today, Patricia. Thank you so much for including me in your amazing podcast. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, thank you for giving us your time. And until we speak again next time, remember to always bet on yourself. Sancho.